0: The fourth factor which arises in meditation simultaneous with the um, delightful sensation, is joy. It's an inner joy which at that time, at that time, is not noticed as a primary object. Because the primary object is a physical sensation, which is overriding the emotional state. It's much stronger in the initial stage. And it also constitutes the first, that sensation, the first factor that we concentrate on when the meditation has come to the point of absorption. However, joy is simultaneously there, and that's why that first state is also called rapture, because rapture is an emotional state, and cannot very well be described as a physical one, and yet the physical one is the one that, in on, on a practical level, takes precedence at first. This fourth factor of joy, sukha, in Pali, counteracts effectively our four syndromes, restlessness and worry. The fourth hindrance of restlessness and worry is inherent in everyone because we are unsatisfied, whether we know it or not. Now those people who do know it think that they have a particularly unsuccessful or unlucky existence. And those people who don't know it think they're successful and lucky, and yet underlying it all is restlessness and worry. Restlessness is a factor of the mind, which only disappears completely for the Arahant. Even the non I still have it, which shows us where it comes from. It comes from our ego illusion, which does not allow us any real peacefulness. However, because we don't usually put our attention in that direction, our restlessness seems connected with the fact that we're always wanting something else. And the reason we do is because what we've got is not good enough. Now, the only way we don't know this restlessness is either through the foggy mind, foggy mind knows nothing, of course, or the distracted mind, the one that purposely distracts itself. If we become mindfully aware of our inner state, we will know restlessness. And it's very, very easy to know. If we've been lying down for a long time, we want to get up. If we've been standing up for a long time, we want to sit down. We've been sitting down for a long time, we'd like to lie down. And so it goes in a never-ending circle. If we've been at home a long time, we'd like to go out. We've been going out often, we'd like to have some peace and quiet at home. We've been talking to somebody on the phone, we are sick and tired of the telephone. Nobody's been ringing us for days, we want to ring somebody up. And so on and so forth. Over and over again. We've been eating a lot of goodies. We quite all right to fast. We've been fasting a long time, we'd like to eat something nice. Nobody's satisfied with anything. Even the most innocuous things are not satisfying. So our restlessness shows itself in those minor details. It shows itself in our striving for something else. Whatever we've got, it isn't good enough. If we have health, we forget about it, that we've got it. And we're looking for beauty. If we've got beauty... We're looking for elegance. If we haven't got health, we've got sickness, we want health. It's never good. It's just always not the way we want it. This is the cause for Dukkha. It's very simple, the whole thing. Doesn't make it any easier, but it's very simple. That is the cause for Dukkha. Whatever it is, We don't want it. We want something else. And if it's something which is really desirable, we don't pay any attention to it. We take it for granted. Now in the affluence of the West, for instance, we take for granted that we've got a clean bathroom. We just travel around the East sometime. You're never going to take it for granted again. It's an absolute boon. It's like paradise, but... In the West, who cares? If it shouldn't have a clean bathroom somewhere, then of course, there are complaints and there are dislikes. But if it's there, natural. So whatever it is that we have that is good and nice, it's not appreciated because it doesn't arouse anything in us. But what we haven't got, that we want to get, And those things that we have, which aren't totally satisfying, we'd like to do something about and get rid of them. This inner restlessness can be observed, and should be observed, particularly now, in the quiet of a retreat. It's constantly there, even in sleep. That's why we toss and turn. And some people wake up with all their blankets on the floor. And some people wake up with their pillow at the end of where the feet are. We are constantly restless. It's never good enough, whether asleep or awake. We must have a look at that. Because if we don't, we'll never understand why the Buddha said that the only thing to do in a human life is to understand, to get out of existence, which is not annihilation. Just to get out of existence, out of all this illusion and delusion, out of all this restlessness. And then we'll maybe have that understanding And all this craving and clinging that we do all the time is totally absurd. It just adds to our dukkha. It doesn't reduce any dukkha. All the things we want to have, particularly life, trying to cling to it just adds to our dukkha. Observing our own restlessness is very simple. And I'd like to urge you to do that. It's mindfulness of our mental content, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which at this point concerns the fourth hindrance. Been doing walking meditation, one wants to sit down, one's been sitting down, wants to get up. There's no difficulty in observing it. And having observed it doesn't mean that one can now change it. One can only change the underlying cause for it, and that is ego, and that to change that isn't all that easy and doesn't work that quickly. But at least to know that there is no particular reason for all this restlessness, for all this wanting and not wanting, other than the... the totality of the human delusion helps us to know that we don't need to blame any particular person or situation for our dissatisfaction. We don't have to blame anything for it, but we have to know it. And when we know this dissatisfaction which expresses itself in that restlessness, then we know dukkha. And only when we know dukkha do we know why we practice. We are not practicing because we have just experienced the tragedy. Most people haven't. And those who have usually relate to it wrongly anyway. We practice because we have finally understood what it means to be a human being with all the inherent dukkha. Restlessness is one of the best possibilities of observing that in oneself. There are many others, but this is a very good one. Because it seems so natural to constantly change from one thing to the next. In the quiet of a retreat, it's much easier even than in daily life, because in daily life there are necessities arising very often to change from one thing to the next. So there's a justification. Here, we can just see it as what it is. And worry, of course, is inherent in everyone. Some people are particularly prone to it and can't ever relax from it. They are very, um, they find it very difficult to see The good things in life, because they're constantly worrying about the fact what's going to happen next. In other words, they can't live in the moment. The more we live in the moment, and that is also a mindfulness factor which needs to be addressed in the practice outside of the meditation, our ability to live in the moment is the relation to The amount of worry we have, if we can really live now, there's no worry. We can either have one or the other. Either we are present, right now, or we worry. We can choose, actually. If we ever have enough sense to make sensible choices, we would certainly choose to live now. Most people don't even know that they can choose. They just worry. It's a popular pastime. It's almost a parlor game. People talk about such things. They think it's a conversation topic. All the things they're worrying about. The war, the recession, the atomic bomb, the children, the grandchildren, the state of the nation, the uh, um, large interest rates, the small interest rates, the business... Friends, partners, all sources for worry if one likes to do it. Many people love it. And why do people like doing this? It's an ego affirmation. At least they have all these identification systems of children and grandchildren and partners and business and interest rates and Gulf War and all the rest of it. And they're all part and parcel of that. Because they worry about it. If we wouldn't worry about it, it wouldn't be ours. So we have a wonderfully huge identification system. The more we worry, the more ego. It's lots of fun for lots of people. And the result, of course, is a worried society with tension and stress getting sicker and sicker. It's usually concerned with the future, because we cannot possibly worry about the present moment, because what is there in the present moment? We're breathing. Is there anything to worry about? The only reason we should worry is when we stop breathing. And that's also nothing to worry about, because everybody will one day. We're sitting. Well, that's nothing to worry about. What else is there? Is there anything else? There's nothing else. We're breathing and we're sitting. Or we're walking. There's nothing to worry about. The innumerable things that the mind can dream up to worry about is quite interesting to observe if one gets enough distance from oneself to be objective. Mindfulness is objectivity. Without that objectivity, we can't possibly recognize ourselves. It's the mirror image. If we look in the mirror, we don't think that that's actually this body. We know it's a mirror image. So if we use mindfulness, like getting a mirror image of ourselves, we can have, learn, objectivity. And if we do, we can watch all this worrying and all the subjects that we worry about go past like a home movie. Everybody makes their own home movies. Very interesting to see. And when we get finally tired of it, like one has to get tired of home movies, they're so amateurish, they don't really get anybody's interest, then one might actually stop worrying one day. Because it's always the same, over and over again. Except that the people, the children get a little bigger, and the trees are either green or not, and that's the whole difference. Otherwise, it's always the same home movie. And if one has meditated and labelled, one already knows part of that whole movie. Now this simultaneous arising of the inner joy counteracts restlessness and worry during the meditation because we have got what we actually wanted. We've got joy. Of course, it's not enough to have that during meditation. We also have to use our daily remedies for that. One of the reasons why it counteracts it effectively also is because we can't do two things at a time with the mind. We either are absorbed in the meditation and experience that joy, or we worry about some nonsense that is going to happen in the future. We can't do both. So it's either one or the other. The residual effect of that joy that arises to counteract restlessness and worry is the same as the residual effect that I've already explained for the delightful sensation. In our daily lives, the Buddha has compared restlessness and worry to being a slave. One is at the mercy of them. One is totally in dependency. Now, the Buddha's teaching goes towards freedom and liberation. That's the only reason for meditating, even if one hasn't thought of it yet. It still is the only reason for it. And therefore, in being in dependency to restlessness and worry is, to say the least, absurd. I think one should say it's foolish. And that can be helpful. Some people are able to accept the fact that they're foolish. Some people can't handle it. It's okay, it doesn't matter. If we can handle it, to look at it, that we are foolish, and we notice restlessness or worry or both in us, and tell ourselves that we are fools, to make ourselves voluntarily unhappy, it may help. No guarantee, but it may. It's a possibility. To have that kind of honesty towards oneself is a beginning of inner honesty and clarity. If one doesn't have it towards oneself, one certainly can't have it outside of that. So it can be very helpful. To be a slave to detrimental emotions must be considered foolish. The Buddha compared also the water pond with one where the water plants were so manifold that one couldn't see one's likeness, completely covered over. And the antidotes uh, that he prescribed for daily life are again one's association with wise people who could help one to see the benefits of letting go. And knowing more about the Dhamma. Now, knowing more about the Dhamma means, in this case, actually knowledge. Actually, the plain, unvarnished knowledge which is available out of the Buddha's discourse in this tradition. Other traditions use other basic texts, this tradition uses the Buddhist discourses. As they have been handed down to us, for better or worse, that's what we've got. And within them we can find the wisdom of an enlightened mind and the guidelines how to do it oneself. It's strictly a do-it-yourself job. The only thing that we can do is to have the association with people who do have some of that wisdom that arises out of the understood experience. Now, an association with wise people and knowing more about the Dhamma and, in addition, noble friends and noble conversation. So you can see what importance the Buddha ascribes to one's association. Who we are connected with, who we live with, who we talk to. Naturally, people who are working in outside jobs have to be together with whoever is there. But in that case, one can learn to become a noble friend and to start the noble conversations. There's no need to wait till somebody else does it. If we haven't got that difficulty, if we don't have to be together with certain people, but can choose our associations and relationships, we must learn to choose wisely. If we don't learn to choose wisely, we will again and again find ourselves in company which is detrimental to our mind states. And if we don't learn to protect our own mind states, the mind will always be affected by what's going on around it. This protection of one's own mind states goes further than, of course, our connections and associations but the buddha gave so much importance to it that he said that a noble friend is the whole of a spiritual life not just a bit of it but the whole of it so the noble friend in the pali tradition in this Theravada tradition is called the Kalyanamitta. mita which is often meant to be the meditation teacher. It can be an outside person, but that word kalyanamitta mitta often refers to, in the text, to the meditation teacher. A noble friend is not a person who agrees with one. That's not a noble friend. That's an agreeable person. It's very nice to have a noble persons. It makes life very simple, but it doesn't teach us a thing. A noble friend is a person who points out where we are going wrong, and shows us a way to go right. That's a noble friend. The Buddha was the greatest noble friend, and his most um, the companion he had most of the time was Ananda. His cousin and attendant was a contemporary, and they lived together for 25 years. Ananda was not enlightened at that time. Later he was. And many of the Buddha's discourses are directed towards Ananda, because Ananda asked the question. And quite often Ananda would say things that the Buddha totally disagreed with. One time Ananda said, I understand the profundity of the dependent origination, and the Buddha said, do not say so, Ananda. You can't possibly understand that. And then he gave a new explanation of it, because he knew very well that Ananda didn't have a clue, because it was much too profound for him. So he didn't agree and said, yes, Ananda, you're very intelligent, I'm sure you understand. But at other times, of course, when Ananda did say something, that was correct. He also praised him. And when Ananda said to him one time, Sir, the, um, a, a noble friend is half of a holy life, that's when the Buddha also disagreed and said, No, do not say so, Ananda. A noble friend is a whole of a holy life. So the Buddha by no means was agreeable. He was a teacher. And since he was much more advanced than anybody else around him, he was able to see where his followers and disciples went wrong and try to show them the right way. And that is the noblest of friends. If he hadn't been that, if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have the teaching available to us. And none of the things you've heard would be available. Not one single one. Although bits and pieces of this can be found here and there, in psychology, in philosophy, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, the complete understanding and direction of purification of mind and heart, in this detailed analysis, is only to be found in the Buddha's teaching. So these antidotes in daily life for restlessness and worry need to be added to our meditative practice. And that's why I keep saying meditation does not stand alone. It's all very nice to sit with one's crossed legs and get concentrated, and I hope everybody does, but it's not enough. And that's why the teaching is always part of it and the daily practice has to be part of it. If we don't practice, every day, through the mindfulness of becoming aware of mental emotional states or mental content, or both, we will never make any headway. Everything is going to remain the same, even if we get concentrated. Because that purification system of the concentration alone is not enough. It's extremely helpful, both have to work together, but it's not enough. It's got to be done in daily life also. The joy which arises is an extremely important factor. And I will show right now to you where its proper place is. Although it arises simultaneously in what is called the first jhana, J-H-A-N-A, which is the first meditative absorption, and because it's so much shorter a word, I think I'll use it from now on. It does not take pride of place. Pride of place in the first jhana is sort of like the entry hall to that mansion, which is the delightful sensation. However, an intelligent mind, which I'm sure we all possess, recognizes immediately after having done it two or three times that we do not meditate for the purpose of delightful sensations. I don't think that we have to be terribly intelligent for that. I'm sure it's quite clear to everybody. Although our natural inclination for craving and clinging will immediately tempt the mind to say, Oh, that was nice, how am I going to get this back? Only after having practiced for some time, and having done it over and over again, does it become so common and habitual that the mind isn't even interested in it anymore. So, until that happens, we have to use the intelligent mind to recognize the fact that we're certainly not meditating for the purpose of pleasant sensations. Therefore, the mind is willing to let go. And as it is willing to let go, it then attends to its emotional state. The first thing is the physical state, the second thing is the emotional state. The emotional state, while still being gross, is less gross than the physical state. Just as in everything else, the meditative process goes from the grosser aspect to the more subtle ones until we reach a state of such subtleties that it can only be described with difficulty. And the mind has become so refined at that time that it can see aspects of existence which have been hidden until then. Usually we believe that everything exists can either be seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, or, well, usually those two, seen or heard. And everything else is suspect. And that's uh, another foolishness. We can't even look around the corner. We can't see beyond the horizon. We can't see ultraviolet light, and we believe what we see with these very imperfect uh, physical um, implements. Most people, after a certain age, have to wear, wear glasses to see to read even the phone book. Never mind look around the corner, and we believe all that what we see with our eyes. And anything we don't see with our eyes, well, maybe that's not so. We're very doubtful about it. So we would like to see more, or hear more, or know more, in order to enhance and enlarge our mind capacity. That doesn't work that way at all. The limitations that are put upon us with our physical aspects and even the thinking aspect are so great that within those limitations we cannot go beyond a certain barrier, which is still a marketplace mentality. So now, from the physical to the emotional, at least we know that we have gone away from that which seemed so pleasant, but because the joy already has been um, present, there's no difficulty from changing to one to the next. It's absolutely essential that when one is able to do the absorption, so Janus, that one does them step by step and knows exactly where one's at. If we don't know where we're at, we haven't got a chance to go somewhere else. It's like this: the street map or the road map where we'd like to reach a certain place, but we don't know what corner we're at. How do we know whether we're going to turn right or left? If we don't know which corner we're at, we can't possibly use the best road map. Since the Buddha has given an exact road map for meditation, we've got to know where we're at. Later on, when we have become more perfected in it, we can, what is called, play with the jhanas. But first, let's do them before we play with them. So... the second step means from a practical standpoint, that we let the sensation go into the background of attention, and it still remains in the background of attention, and in the foreground comes the joy. The joy being in the foreground of attention, then proves to us beyond the shadow of the doubt, that inner joy is far more desirable, far more beneficial, far more fulfilling, than what we've had so far, and had might have called even joy, which always came through our senses. It never came from the inner concentration until we finally get there. It always came through the senses. We enjoyed something, and we had some enjoyment. But this inner joy has a different aspect to it. Because it is independent. It doesn't depend on seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, or thinking. It depends on inner purity. And if we have it, it has the effect of being in touch with inner purity, but also it has the effect of purifying. Because it is an independent arising, independent of outer conditions, it's dependent upon concentration, of course. It frees us from our dependency on outer triggers and on moods. As long as we are dependent upon our inner joy, whether we have a good or a bad mood, we are still slaves to that constant change that takes place. Once we've got our concentration in order, we don't no longer have to be dependent on any of that. So our interest in and our search for pleasantness and enjoyment out there in the world diminishes drastically. Not because we are consciously renouncing anything, just because we've got something much better. And that's the main object of the second jhana. We've got something much better. Whatever it is they've got out there, it can't compare. No comparison. And when it comes to that, we naturally have to practice to the point of being able to go there into that inner realm of inner joy on demand whenever we want to and be totally clear that we're there. And then that has the effect of cleansing out much of this impure defilement of not only restlessness and worry, which is, of course, its main opponent, or for which it is the main opponent, but it also has the quality of cleaning out much of our desires. And that means less dukkha, because desires make dukkha. That's all they do they don't bring fulfillment. This is our, again, our absurd upside-down look. The Buddha said that we look at everything upside-down. We don't understand the reality. So we think the are going to bring fulfillment, but in reality they bring Dukkha. So when that inner joy has become an established meditation process, it works effectively against that. So, Dukkha becomes much less. Having Dukkha is a defilement. Having Dukkha is impurity, because it's based on desire. And it doesn't mean sensitivity, it doesn't mean having had tragedy, it just means desire. That's all, wanting or not wanting. And this is another totally misunderstood fact, which has been shown by the Buddha in his first, very first discourse after enlightenment, and can be tried out by anyone, whether it's true or not. It's only when we try it out ourselves that we recognize the truth of it, and can learn to live accordingly. If we don't learn to live accordingly, it's all in vain. The whole thing. So joy is the predominant feature, the predominant factor of concentration for the second jhana, which means that we have now from the entrance hall moved into the first um, room where we of this mansion, where we can now enjoy our presence there. It has another uh, benefit. It brings self-confidence. Self-confidence because we recognize the fact that we've become independent from what other people's emotions are portraying to us, whether they love us or not whether they leave us or not, whether they appreciate us or not, whether they blame us or praise us, we've got inner joy. It makes no difference. That's a state of affairs which is very desirable. Buddha once went into a village where he was not appreciated, where he was blamed, where he was uh, actually Um, some um, scandal was hinted about him. People love doing that. It's been a pastime since humanity's been on this globe. And nobody would give him any food. So, he walked through the whole village, came out the other end, got himself a bit of grass, sat down on it and started meditating with his empty arms bowl behind, beside him. Of course he was meditating, having the, the meditative absorptions. story says his countenance and body were shining. And a wanderer of another sect came by and saw him sitting there with the empty arms bowl next to him and stopped and commiserated with him and said, I'm so sorry, sir, that uh, you didn't receive any food in this village. Must be very uncomfortable for you. You must be very hungry. Buddha said, We feed on inner joy. And so, Chat walked on, probably shakes, shaking his head about it. <laughs> <laughs> Independence from what other people do. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, it's possible. It means no longer being dependent upon what are called the eight worldly conditions or the eight worldly They Their praise and blame, loss and gain, fame and ill-fame, happiness and unhappiness. If the meditation has come to the point of this inner experience and goes along with sufficient realization of what's actually happening, namely the understood experience, not just sitting there having it and going away from it and then getting it back again and maybe yes and maybe no and isn't it nice and isn't it not nice, none of that, that doesn't work. But having the meditative ability plus the understanding, these eight worldly conditions no longer apply. And these eight worldly conditions are what every worldling is subject to. Praise and blame, loss and gain, fame and ill-fame, happiness and unhappiness. That's what we would always like, four of them, and dislike the other four intensely. And we want to keep the four, and we want to get rid of the other four. Permanently. The quicker the better. It's an impossibility. It's a search for something which doesn't exist. It's again trying to get the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But we can get rid of it by having an entirely different inner reality. And although the very first jhana, which contains already that joy, doesn't do that, because that joy, joyful experience is not the predominant concentration factor, the second jhana has this ability to do that for us. And therefore, joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Going around with a long face, is not spiritual and not holy. It's just going around with a long face, that's all. <laughs> I think I'll leave the next hindrance for tomorrow. Might as well take our hindrances in small doses not all at once and see whether you have any questions Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Find within you a feeling of joy. Whatever you need for a trigger, use it. If you can't find the joy, just by looking for it, use anything that can make it arrive. And as you feel it, Spread it, for that it pervades your whole body from head to toe. And then find within you a feeling of love, warmth, care, concern, togetherness. And if you can't find it, use anything that will make it arise, any person, anything that will help you to make it arise. and then spread it around you feel the joy pervading you and the love surrounding you Now, hand the joy and the love to the person nearest you as your gift to that person. Let him or her have all the joy that you can find and all the love that you can find. I notice By giving it, it still remains with you. You don't become empty of it. You're only including the other person with it. And now hand all the joy and all the love you can find to everybody here. And can you notice how it then expands in your own heart? hand all the joy and all the love you can find to your parents. Whether they're still alive or not. Let them share it. And now share it with your nearest and dearest people. Let them have all of the joy and all of the love that you can find. Fill them with the joy and embrace them with the love. And notice how it's still within you. And don't lose it by giving it away. now hand all the joy and all the love you can find to all your friends share it with all of them let them be totally pervaded and embraced by joy and love coming from your heart to them And now share your joy and your love with all the people who are part of your life. Co-workers, neighbors, acquaintances, business people, relations. Feel the togetherness with them by giving them the best your heart can give. Let the boundaries and barriers of the heart fall, and let joy and the love flow out of it. First to people that may be in these buildings, sharing these buildings with us. And then in the houses around here. Let them all be part of your heart knowing we're together and belong together. Go further afield as far as your imagination will take you. People and beings everywhere. Feel the unity and togetherness of the family of mankind by sharing the best you have. Put your attention back on yourself. Become aware of whatever you can find within. Know it for your interior life. Make it beautiful and peaceful. so that you have much to share with others. Let the beauty and the peace fill you and surround you. the beans